And the text is Nehemiah 7:73b through 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 10, along with verses 12 through 15 and 17. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the, seventh, of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and all, and all who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadaniah, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people under, understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy the choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gather around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palm trees, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them, and their joy was very great. This is God's word. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Dear God, I pray um, again for the service, Lord. I thank you for all our um, guests and our church family members that are here this morning, Lord. We lift up Pastor Kyle to you now as... Um, as he preaches today, Lord, I pray that every word is from you, God, and um, it helps us to create an atmosphere that is filled with you. In your name, amen. Well, welcome, everybody. It's so good to see everyone this morning. Um, if you think our sermon texts are long, <laughs> Nehemiah read all day <laughs> his sermon text, or Ezra, rather. <laughs> So it's so good to see everyone. Thank you so much for being here, friends, in church. I just want to encourage you, if you are a member of our church, please stick around for our meeting. We have some important things that we need. We need our members to stay so that we can vote on them because we need a certain percentage. So if you can please stay with us um, and do those things with us, it's really 
um, important that we do that today. We've got some cool things that we're going to be talking about. But um, yeah, um, it's, it's that time of year we're approaching Good Friday and Easter. I hope that we've been praying for a friend or a loved one that, that might join us for church. Um, and we, we've just got some exciting times coming up soon, and we hope to knock some of these walls down to just make more space in here. It's kind of small in here, so we're hoping to do that and just kind of see what the Lord does and um, how he might bless our church. And um, So yeah, so just be praying for that. It's just really exciting. And if you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Um, and I hope that you can stay and enjoy the food um, afterwards and that we can uh, just get to talk to you and enjoy your company a little bit longer. But uh, the um, American gangster Al Capone lived from 1899 to 1947. Most of you, if you've lived in the United States for any length of time, have probably heard of him. Um, he was also known as Scarface. Um, and this infamous uh, mobster controlled the Chicago underworld while he was alive. He boasted a multi-million dollar operation which included prostitution, bootlegging, gambling, and supposedly bringing in over $100 million a year at the time, and that was in the 30s. So can you imagine how wealthy and rich this man was? He gained a reputation, of course, um, for his brutal acts of violence. And his most famous act of violence was on, actually on Valentine's Day. Nice guy. Um, Valentine's Day. Hello, this is a, a love note from Al Capone to you. But it was called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and he ordered the execution of seven of his rivals all in the same day. Local authorities <clears throat> began to scramble to convict this known felon, and they finally accomplished it by something in a way that you probably might not have expected. And it was basically they nabbed him on tax evasion. Can you imagine that? All the things, all, the, all the, the crimes that he committed, all the laws he broke, they, they weren't able to prove him guilty and sentence him on any of them except tax evasion. He was proven guilty and sentenced to an 11-year stint at a state penitentiary. Eventually he was released and died early after because they believe he had um, early um, Alzheimer's, actually. But as the saying goes, there's more than one way to skin, skin a cat, isn't there? It's not like, un unlike William Wilberforce. Have you guys heard of William Wilberforce? He is a little older and nicer a guy than Al Capone. In his personal journal, William Wilberforce wrote, God Almighty has placed before me two great objects. Number one, the suppression of the slave trade. And number two, the reformation of manners. And he didn't mean, you know, having a napkin on your lap at the dinner table. That's not what he meant by manners. He was talking about spirituality there. But that was his mission statement in life. William Wilberforce, I have two great objects in my life. To restore people to spiritual life, number, number two. Number one, the suppression of the slave trade, to abolish the slave trade. Many years of persistent attempts, Wilberforce just wasn't able to convince people, especially people making lots of money and getting, getting very wealthy off the slave trade, to abolish it. He was a politician, and he tried to legally outlaw this, <clears throat> and was unable to do it. There was just too many rich people getting wealthy off the slave trade. But when war struck with France, Wilberforce and his team observed a way in which slavery wouldn't be abolished, but would, but would be greatly reduced. Because tensions were high with France, he got his team 
to construct a bill that basically would, would um, forbid trade with France. And because France and England were the major superpowers at the time, that would basically eliminate the slave trade, ba basically reduce it 80% in the world. The bills overwhelmingly approved, and Wilberforce wasn't even there because they didn't want them to know he was up to something. You see what I mean? So he didn't even vote on the bill. But the bill passed, and the slave trade got reduced by 80%, and eventually the nation, years later, would eventually outlaw it to begin with. There was a greater ob objective, though, than simply trade restrictions. That wasn't really his concern. There was an underlying motivation in doing this that was fueled by his mission. And such is the story of the book of Nehemiah. Building walls was not his primary mission. The book of Nehemiah is not about a grand building project. It's a means to an end, accomplishing a greater mission, the real mission. Early on, we noted that there are two main divisions. When we first started studying this book, there are two parts, two chapters, if you will, to the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 1 is rebuilding the walls. That's actually chapters 1 through 7. But that's part 1 of the book, rebuilding the walls. Part 2, chapters 8 through 13, is the real heart, the real mission, the real matter at hand, the real reason why Nehemiah came back to begin with, and that was rebuilding the hearts of the people. Reformation of God's people who had become sinful and dry and stale because the kingdom of God was not getting built in their hearts. They were not following the Lord and they needed to return to praise Yahweh. See? And this is in chapters 8 through 13. Now that the walls are, are built, Israel has returned to occupy the land. Now starts the work of reformation of God's people. And this morning, this is what we turn to, part two of the story of Nehemiah, chapter two, if you will, the reformation of God's people. Again, this is not a book about a building project or leadership strategies in the face of opposition. It's about religious awakening. I know in our culture, the word religious, if you're an evangelical, it's usually used kind of like in a negative way. You know, we're not religious, we're Christians, we're, you know, um, Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship. So we use the word religion kind of negatively in the evangelical world. But th that's a very new thing. The, the word religion was used by many, many Christians for, for, that, for hundreds and hundreds of years in church history to really talk about spiritual life in the Christian heart. See, so it's not really an ugly word as, as much as we would like to say it is today. This book is about spiritual awakening in our hearts as the local church and as individuals. That's what it was about for them, and that's what it's about for us. It's the direct application for us this morning. It's the revival of spiritual life in the hearts of God's people. And that's why we're studying this book. We're not studying this book. I'm not trying to trick you into building walls because we, we're doing this thing with our, thing, our, our church right now. Where we, want, we, we actually want to knock them down. But I'm not trying to trick you into giving money to, for our project. What I'm doing by presenting this to you is to ask you to consider the condition of your own heart. To ask if the kingdom of God is alive and living and powerful in your life. What might be getting in the way of it? What ornaments, what God, what idolatry, what sin might be getting in the way of your vibrant spiritual life and victory in Christ? Because that's what we need to be all about, as we'll see as we continue. This is the vision of our church, by the way. Religious awakening, if you recall it. 
that all the goodness of God in Christ would awaken his people and his world for his glory. I can't imagine any church under heaven not having that same vision. Because we're not here simply just to gather and hang out and have fun and make friends. We're here to be awakened to the goodness of God in Christ. That's why we're here. There's a maxim in church history, by the way, that tells, well, aren't we here to get people? Isn't religious awakening about unbelievers? I kind of had that idea about revival. You hear the word revival and historic awakenings in church history. We kind of think that's about unbelieving people becoming believers, like lots of them. That's kind of was my definition. You know, that's not really what an awakening is. That's not what a revival is. An awakening, a revival, always begins in the hearts of God's people in his church. That's where it starts. And you want to know why people normally in in revivals get saved? Because that's how God uses his church to save people. So this is incredibly important. So there's a maxim in church history that says simply this, that the revival of a town or of a nation begins with you, with, with the local church. It starts in your heart. And that means something very simple, that our death is our neighbor's death, our apathy is our neighbor's apathy, our unbelief is our neighbor's unbelief, our sin is our neighbor's sin. So when we pray for it, when we pray for revival, when we pray for awakening, it should be first in us and second in our church. Because if we ever want to see people in great numbers come to faith in Jesus Christ, it begins there. That's how it happens. And it's proven in Scripture, by the way, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. So this service, actually, I hope to prove that to you. I want to show you what are the basic and common elements of revival, religious awakening in a culture, what always seems to happen. And there are four, and we can see them, see them right in our text. This is actually a perfect example of it happening in, in the Old Testament. There are many more. But there are, three ba- there are four basic elements that you can see. First, leadership. Second, crisis. Third, the centrality of the word. And fourth, the response to the word. Okay? Those aren't in necessarily any particular order, but let's just take them one at a time. Thomas Carlyle theorized this, that the history of the world is but a biography of great men. Have you ever heard this? This is the great men theory. So in other words, historic shifts in history, some dramatic change in political government, something incredible happening that was just different um, from what the cultural norm was at the time, that's brought about by one great leader. Socrates, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Abraham Lincoln, Mother Teresa, to name a few. Now whether it's true that we owe them full credit or not for historic shifts, that's one matter. I'm not trying to prove that this is true or not. But it is certainly true and quite common that in the church that vision often is birthed in a leader or leaders when a generation of people, that's kind of like you and me, is groaning under the suffering because of our own or a previous generation's sin. When that groaning starts to rise up to heaven, God raises up leaders to direct them. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament in the prophets, in the New Testament, in the apostles. God raises up leaders in response to the groaning cries of his people. See? So leadership. Richard Lovelace wrote that there's a common principle of deliverance that we can know in Scripture. When God delivers in a grand way in Scripture, a person or many people, there's a common principle that we can note, he says, that redemption comes 
under the direction of leaders who God raises up in his sovereign mercy in response to the deep longing and intercession of the laity generated under the oppression of defeat and suffering, usually that is the consequence of individual or corporate sin. So God presses and suffering comes because of an idolatry in his people and those people start to cry out and God hears from heaven. See? The day of Pentecost is a, is a primary example of this happening. And what is the crisis? The death of Christ. The apostles scatter. They all make the wrong choice. They don't have courage. They don't have leadership. They enter into sin. They start denying him and running away. You remember this? But then Christ appears to them. They get an appearance, a revelation of Jesus Christ himself after he's resurrected from the dead. You see them to start groaning over their own sin, repenting over their own sin. And then one day in an upper room, they cry out to God. They're praying to God. And what happens? The power of God comes down. And when the power of God comes down, he raises up some leaders, one of which, Peter, begins to preach and 5,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see this? <coughs> There's also a marked pattern with Moses in the book of Exodus. We've mentioned this, I think, in weeks past at different meetings. Moses in the book of Exodus, the various judges in the book of Judges, we see this marked pattern. There's a crisis some kind of crisis, a suffering. God's judgment has come because of generational apostasy, idolatry, and sin. So there's a crisis. And then all of a sudden, the weight of that crisis is felt by God's people. There's an awareness of their sin, and they begin to cry out to God in unified prayer and repentance. And a new generation calls out to God for rescue, and then there's an empowerment from God. God shows up, and then he raises up leaders to lead Israel or the church to salvation, you see. Figures such as Nehemiah and Ezra are two source figures in, in the examples of this happening in Scripture. Israel's second exodus, if you will. The first exodus under Moses out of Egypt, the second exodus out of Babylon with Nehemiah and Ezra leading them back to Jerusalem, you see. So the next generation coming out of captivity because of the apostasy of their fathers prepared the way for corporate repentance and anointed leaders. So leaders that are risen up by God as a response of the groaning of God's people. We'll get to that more in this next point, which is crisis. Leaders, number one. Number two, crisis. What is the crisis of the nation Israel in the book of Nehemiah? The crisis that the nation of Israel had found themselves in basically was the result of generational sin and idolatry. Their fathers worshipped foreign gods and would not repent. They came out of Israel, out of Judah, the southern kingdom Judah, under evil kings that were leading their hearts astray to worship foreign gods. And over and over again, they were called to repent by the prophets, and they refused to listen, and eventually they were herded off into Babylonian captivity, and the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and God, God's presence had left. This is their crisis. Up to this point, Israel 
was allowed under Persia to return and rebuild the temple, but there was no corporate repentance. There was no acknowledgement of generational sin and idolatry, that the hearts of the people were far from God. They were still in this crisis. And they still needed to forsake their idols and return to Yahweh. Their crisis is much like Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 33, which we see doesn't history repeat itself over and over again. Let's, let's think of what's going on in Exodus 33 with Moses, because I think it's a direct parallel to what's happening in the book of Nehemiah. Moses led the children of Israel out of the iron furnace of Egypt under great captivity and slavery into the wilderness. They were rescued by God miraculously. You remember this story. And, that, and God is leading them and providing for their needs. And subsequently, the, the children of Israel, in spite of these great miracles, are still complaining to God. Where is the water? Where is the food? It would be better if we were back in Egypt and we had food and cucumbers. And what's going on here? And God endured with this complaining spirit and this lack of faith. He continued with them, continued to lead them, so much so that he led Moses to Mount Sinai and gave Moses his covenant, the Ten Commandments. Remember, on two tablets of stone. God is meeting with Moses face to face to reveal himself to Moses and to his people. Amazing intimacy and, and leadership from God himself through the wilderness. And on one such occasion, after the law is given to them, Moses goes back to meet with God. He's taking a little bit too long for the children of Israel. And they decide, you know what, Aaron, we're sick of this. We're going to take off all of our jewelry, all of our ornaments, Aaron. You make them into a golden calf. And Aaron does it. And he takes all the gold and all the jewelry of the Israelites. And he melts it down. And they create this golden calf. And all with one voice, Israel says, Behold the God who has taken us out of captivity. And Moses is still on the mountain in the presence of God. And God says, Your people are doing a wicked thing. Go down and deal with them. This is their crisis. God responds to this. To all of this heroism and victory and miraculous deliverance and love and compassion and presence, Israel still decides to disobey the law, to reject God as their God and serve another God. And this is God's response. I have seen these people, this is Exodus 33 verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked. Now leave me alone so that my anger might burn against them and that I might destroy them. But Moses prays, intercedes for the people of Israel and God decides, he relents to not completely wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses descends the mountain and he says in verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin but I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So he does this. He goes back up the mountain. And he addresses Yahweh. And the Lord said to Moses this. Leave this place, 
you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, go to the land I promised you, promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants, but I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I won't be with you. You want your ornaments? You got them. But I'm not with you. You see, he relents from wiping them off the face of the earth because of their sin. He doesn't destroy them utterly, but he says, go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. The very ornaments that they had melted down to make into another god, they had realized were their false god and what they had done. And the consequence was that God's blessing was not in their lives. And he was not in the camp. Moses begins to intercede for Israel. The Lord relents from destroying them entirely, but he would not go with them. He would not lead them. And friend, this is the crisis that all of us need to recognize as a possibility in our lives. The spiritual crisis that the church very well can face, is facing, or that you as an individual can face, because you have decided that the ornaments of this world are more precious to you than the presence of the Lord God himself. More glorious, more pleasurable, more fulfilling, more satisfying to your soul. So you fashion a false god and worship him instead. And the Lord, consequently, is not with us. And we may find ourselves going to church services. We may find ourselves showing up at small groups or even coming to church and singing and perhaps praying at times. But is the Lord in our camp? Or has he left? Have we set up some false god that we worship? Some ornament that we melt down and say, this is what I need to rescue me, not God, not Yahweh. This is a necessary element of true personal awakening, friend, in corporate revival. If you're ever going to be alive to the presence of God, you need to recognize that most importantly in your life is the idols that we serve and call God that aren't God. The awareness that we've set up other gods that aren't the Lord and he's not with us. And this becomes a crisis for us. And how do we know that this might have been started to happen in our lives or has happened? Well, you know what Paul says about gods? He says, your God is your appetite, your emotion. What feels good for me in the moment of feeling satisfied as a man or a woman or a people God's word matters not. What it says doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I break it or disobey it. Because this is what I need. This is what delivers me. This golden calf brought me out of the land of Egypt. You see? Not Yahweh. And we do that so often in our lives. 
You see, it's this money, it's this safety, it's this security, it's this girlfriend or it's this boyfriend. This is what's bringing me deliverance and satisfaction and self-esteem. So whether it's a good thing or a sinful thing, it, doesn't, it matters not. Either way, we've replaced Yahweh with those things. You see? And friends, such is the consequence. A lifeless, dead, fruitless church is the consequence of this type of behavior. God's presence is not there. Real repentance isn't just a touch of sorrow over the mistakes that we've made. Well, you know, I know I, I, I did these things. They were wrong. I shouldn't be. And you feel a little bad about it. It's, it's a deep awareness in your gut that you've traded God for something else. A sinking awareness that he's not with you. And you don't have his blessing because of it. And suddenly, all that begins to matter to you in your life is that. That's the crisis. Israel, under Nehemiah and Ezra, were under crisis. Not because of broken walls, but because Yahweh had left. He was not with them. Repentance reveals to our hearts that all the ornaments in this world just don't matter if Yahweh's not on our side. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet uses his, loses his own soul? What might we have traded Yahweh for? Sex. escaping through drugs or alcohol? But could it be that you're putting your, your greatest hope in, you're satisf- finding your satisfaction in? And how vital for all of us to see what's at stake here, not just for the church's sake, but for our own, individually. Israel had found themselves without God, have we? Number three, as gloomy as I know that point just was, there is hope. Because we see another power for revival coming, the centrality of the word. Another movement always present in the restoration of God's church is the centrality of the word. In other words, God is speaking to you. He's offering you deliverance. Simply repent, simply confess, simply put those idols down and get him back. You see? His word goes out to us. He is faithful to deliver it to us. Will we respond? Another movement always present in the restoration of God's church is the centrality of the word of God. Do you realize what you have in your laps? It is not just black words on a white page. It is not simply just encouragement for when you're in trouble or you're afraid. It is God saying, I am with you. That I am yours. And you are mine. Come get me. You see, oftentimes we turn to Scripture simply so that we can help ourselves in times when we're scared about losing money or we get sick or these different things in life. And I have friends, I know I am so guilty of it myself, but the Word of God delivered to us isn't to get us out of a pinch. It's to give us God. It's to give us Him and all His glory and all His goodness and all His pleasure to build you up So God gives us his word. 
the word of God begins to get read in the nation of Israel, and they begin to weep and sob and mourn. But when this word began to be proclaimed, they they begin to see their guilt. And such is always present in any personal and corporate renewal of, of spiritual life. When the word of God is heard and believed, you start realizing what you've done and what you've lost. So what's the consequence? A deep heart anguish. You no longer stand as judge of God's word. It stands as your judge. The crisis leads you to your desperate need to be under the authority and care of the Lord and his word. Suddenly, the word of God becomes your food, your life, your authority, your means. You don't twist it to fit your own desires. You don't reject it because you just prefer another life. If God is your God and you have no other, his word takes center place. You realize that he is the Lord, that he is your creator, that your greatest satisfaction is is in him. And you've spent so much time rejecting his word and what he's said. And as a consequence, you have found yourself broken and miserable. And without him, the word of God pierces our heart and makes us realize our sad condition as a just consequence of our own sinful rebellion. And no, friends, no movement of great spiritual renewal in the church has ever been without a return, not just to learning God's word or knowing about God's word, but really knowing God in your guts as a result of him speaking to you. You see? Just observe the the high importance that Israel was beginning to give to the word of God. Finally, they told Ezra, the teacher of the the law, bring out the book of Moses. The book comes center stage. He reads it aloud from daybreak till noon. And they weren't, oh, this is long. I got stuff to do. I got a ham in the oven. They had realized that they had left God. And like Mary, you remember, who, who knew who Jesus was in that room and it was more important to her than dirty pans. He re- reads aloud from daybreak to noon, all the people, it says, listened attentively to the book of the law. Thousands of people. Ezra, the teacher of the law, it says, stood on a high wooden platform so everybody could see him. Beside him on his right, flanked, were 13 people representing that God was speaking to them. They read from the book of the law of God that not only did they read from it, but they made it clear and gave meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. They were expositing it, explaining it, applying it to their lives. Our hunger for God as primary. You see, it's that Israel's getting pushed back into realizing their desperate crisis and their need for God's word. So their hunger for God as primary was a sure sign that Israel was starting to get renewed and restored. Friends, do you remember when the word of God was like food for you? Do you remember hearing the word of God? You couldn't get enough of it. Do you remember going home and thinking about it? 
Do you remember at times in your life feeling the weight of your sin, but equally feeling the joy of God's love at the same time? Some kind of ironic twist. I remember times when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, it felt like I couldn't even move from my chair. It felt like I wasn't even in the room. Because God had saved me, and he loved me, and he called my name, and he rescued all, And you know, this is the irony. Before all, my eyes were all my heinous sins, and all my rebellions, and all of my sickening um, distractions. But it didn't crush me. It delivered me. It made me realize the great love for Jesus, that Christ had for me. That he forgave it. That I was his son. That I was declared holy. You couldn't keep the gospel off my lips. But at times in the Christian life, isn't it true that we just, things happen, trials happen, we get lazy, we drift, and the word of God is not sweet to our lips anymore. But revival, renewal, you know it's happening because you start to hear the word of God again and you become alive to it. You want it. Oh, and it doesn't matter if there's 10 people in a living room or 1,000 people in a big church because that's not your life. The Word of God is. You see? Israel was getting drawn back a long road of rebellion and idolatry back to Yahweh, to hearing His Word. And they responded. And this is the fourth part of great religious awakening that happens this is the response, always the response. Grief, repentance, joy, and obedience. We've, always, we've talked about this a little bit, but let's just talk about it a little bit more. Grief, repentance, joy, and obedience. That's the normal process response in hearing God's word. When we finally recognize the real problem, the real crisis, we go through grief, repentance, joy, and and obedience. The text says in verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen and Amen. True and true. They were no longer rejecting God's word or saying there's a better way. They were saying, Amen and Amen. Uh, we, they're repenting, in other words. True and true. You are Lord. We need you. Then they bowed down, worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground, prostrate, humiliated before the presence of God because he is holy and they were not. Then in verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of God. They had been brought to grief and tears and mourning. And friends, that is always the result when we, when we realize we have traded God for ornaments. When we realize what we've done and we're, out, we're without his blessing and without his presence, we always begin to mourn and weep. Now you might not be an emotional kind of person. You might not actually weep tears, but your heart's pierced. And you mourn and you weep. Our text notes that people here are gathered as one. They're all together for the express purpose of hearing God's word. And when they heard that word, they begin to weep and they begin to mourn. And it's the effect it had. It examined them. It exposed them. Their sin, their idolatries, their unfaithfulness, the sins of their fathers. How generations of people had left Yahweh, had left Christ 
had left his gospel and his good news. When the people heard these distressing words in Moses' time, you remember in Exodus 33, they did the same thing. When they heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. <clears throat> and it's at this point that another aspect of, a re- of revival surfaces, corporate and repentant prayer. They see the light. They see the problem once and for all, crystal clear. And they begin to cry out to God. You know what Exodus, the the people did and Moses did? They said, we will not go if you don't go with us. It's not worth it. You see, they repented. They realized that the cucumbers and the promised land and the honey and all the benefits that come with the prosperity ahead wasn't worth it without God's presence. So they told God, we won't go unless you go with us. Kill us now. They were repenting. You see, they were turning. They were turning to God in prayer and repentance. And this repentance always results in personal and corporate restoration. Let's read Exodus 33, specifically what happens. Moses says, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, come with us. Don't, be with, don't not go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin. Take us as your inheritance. Don't go Without us. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before, before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation. You see, when God hears the cry of a penitent sinner, he will respond and do wonders. He doesn't leave you. He forgives The people you live among will see how awesome. You see the process, why I was saying renewal, that awakening, people that don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. What's the second part of this? God God is now with Israel. This is what he says. The people you live among, the parasites, all the the names we can't pronounce, what's going to happen to them? They will see how awesome is the work that I have done for you. They'll see it and they'll follow. In verse 11, obey what I command today. Because the Lord is rich in mercy. Friends, he hears our cries for his mercy. When we cry out for repentance and ask for his forgiveness, he he gives it. He intercedes. He provides a mediator. He says, I will put your sin on my son and I will restore you and I will go with you. And this leads the grieving, penitent sinner to rich and full joy. And that's why Nehemiah said, because Nehemiah knew they had repented, he said, you're grieving good, but don't stay there because God has promised deliverance. Rejoice. Rejoice. Don't spend another moment feeling sorry and shame for what you've done in your past because it's gone. It's been put on Christ. Now get up and proceed on. Rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength, it says. When, when, when Israel under Nehemiah begins to grieve, they're told, do not grieve. Rejoice. We're to grieve, but if we've been truly saved, and even as Christians, if we've drifted away and we've confessed and repented, we are to grieve that that sin, but we shouldn't stay there. 
We should grieve because our sin is wicked and we've disobeyed our God. We should grieve because He's holy and He is lovely. And oftentimes we forfeit His blessing and His presence because of our sin. We should grieve because we're deserving objects of His wrath and His anger. But we are to rejoice because the Lord has rescued us. He has not counted our sin against us. He has heard the cry of your penitent prayer in faith. If indeed you have cried that out to the Lord, and if you haven't, Christian or not, you can do that this moment, right now, today. And he will hear you from heaven, and he will pour out his blessing and his presence on you again. Rejoice because he has relented his wrath, and he has put it on another, Christ. The one who has delivered you from the iron furnace of your sin is with you. There is a time for grieving, but if you have repented and believed in the death and resurrection of Christ, that time for grieving is past. Because if you've gone through the rescue of God that God provides, there is hope. Go. It says in our text, go, stop grieving. Go and enjoy Choice food and sweet drink and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. In other words, the poor. Go to them and share this sweet drink with them. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Israel hears these words and obeys. And again, this is the, our, our, our ultimate response when we become awakened to the goodness of God in Christ, when we've repented of our sins and turned to him because we've recognized our great crisis. This is always the response, obedience. Grief, repentance, joy, obedience. Not only a hearing of God's word, but a submission to it. The people of Israel begin to tell the good news. If you read chapter 8 of Nehemiah in full, they're going to start obeying God's word. They tell the good news of what God has done, Yahweh has done. They start spreading it all across the land. They start caring for the poor. They start celebrating the Feast of Booths. Did you see that? The Bible has said Israel had neglected this feast. Why is this important? What's the Feast of Booths? Let's not miss this because this is important. The Feast of Booths was a feast given to Moses, a celebration given to Moses to almost honor the fact or celebrate the fact that God had delivered Israel from the Egyptians and from, from, the, um, from the wilderness because they lived in booths, they lived in tents. So in other words, this celebration is a celebration is a celebration. It's one for rejoicing because they're remembering how God had forgiven them when he should have smushed them, but he didn't. He heard their repentant cry for, for, for forgiveness and he delivered them to the promised land. You see? It was a signal to rejoice in the God who is faithful to deliver them. And friends, that he will always, he will always deliver his people when together... We acknowledge our proneness to turn from him. But when we see the crisis, the great crisis, the desire to serve him comes again, the word transforms our heart, brings us to repentance, and his presence is on us. So we have a great question to ask this morning, I think, about ourselves and about each other as a church. Is God our ornament? Or is something else? 
Because if it's something else, we have another God, and he will not go with us. What ornaments might be keeping us from him this morning? Let's be led by his word. Let's treasure the fact that he is the greatest ornament. And the moment you see that and come to him and cry out to him, he will not judge you. He will forgive you and embrace you. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, I just come, we just come to you as a church today, and we know, Lord, how together we're prone to certain habits of forgetting you and trusting in other things. But God, I thank you, Lord, that you have shown us in your word what is necessary. God, we need you. We need your presence in our lives. Forgive our wandering hearts, how it's so prone to forget how you delivered us from the iron furnace, from our sin. God, I pray, Lord, that you would come to us again and reveal to our hearts the power of your word and what you've said and the forgiveness you offer. I pray, bring us back to you, Lord, so that the world around us would see the wonders that you'll do.